1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. We're going to get through verse 8, I believe. Um, the, Paul actually talks about three different um, issues in this chapter. And, and uh, rather than uh, the, the first two, I, I thought about putting them together in one study, but and then it would just be too much. And so we're splitting them up. And so tonight may be a little bit shorter, but I'm not making any promises on any of that. But the first three chapters of First of Thessalonians focus on looking back at Paul's visit with the Thessalonians and uh, looks back and, and also is, deals with defending his ministry against critics that are there. And, and the tone of the first three chapters is positive and upbeat. Uh, if you read back, you may not have caught this, may or not have thought about this, but if you read back through the first three chapters, you will find that there are no words of correction or rebuke for the Thessalonians whatsoever. And that's very, very remarkable considering the status of the Thessalonians, that they were very young in the faith, that they were new baby Christians and, and that there wasn't any need to do those, those corrections. And Timothy and, you know, Paul, remember Paul had sent him back to Thessalonica to check on the believers there and his time in Thessalonica proved to be refreshing for both the Thessalonians and for Paul. We talked about that last week. However, his visit did reveal some issues with which the Thessalonians were struggling. And so at the end of chapter 3, Paul, we, we talked about this last week, Paul prayed uh, for the, the spiritual growth of the Thessalonians, and he also prayed for God to open a door for him to, to see them again. But until he could get there, until he could see them again, until God opened that door, he wanted to leave them with some final exhortations in, in this letter. And so Paul transitions into what I would call the heart of this letter by pervert, providing the uh, Thessalonians with a series of exhortations. Tonight, as I said, we're going to turn our attention toward the first of these exhortations. Um, but as we do, before we get into that, it's important to remember that, that implicit in Paul's teaching is his conviction that an external transformation is the evidence of an internal regeneration. Uh, say, to say that another way is that it's one thing to say that you're saved, but the proof of your salvation will be revealed by the way you live. This is very much consistent with the message of James, where he says, faith without works is dead. Some people think that James and Paul were in disagreement, but they are not at all uh, because uh, Paul made a big point uh, making it clear that we are not saved by our works. And James never says that we are saved by our works. Uh, James says that if we are saved, it will show up in our works. And Paul agrees with that. So there's no disagreement. This, this is very much the same thing here. When you allow God to speak into your life, your life will be different. And, and in fact, that's one of the main reasons for Paul's rejoicing over Timothy's report, because Timothy's report was that the Thessalonians conduct was was consistent with being saved. And so their conduct pointed to the genuineness of their faith. Uh, and Paul could see that was the evidence that their faith was alive and it was real was because it changed the way that they lived. And so as Paul begins the second half of his letter, He'll, he'll, he will return to this theme repeatedly. But let's pick it up in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. We'll stop there. We'll pick it up in verse 3 in a minute. But So the, these believers in Thessalonica, Thessalonica had learned from Paul and from his companions, how they ought to live in order to please God. He, he said, we, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And, and uh, he, had, he taught them the way that, that, that they should live. They had been instructed by them while they were there. And, and here's the thing about this whole thing about living in order to please God. In fact, that's the title of tonight's study is living to please God. The, the whole Christian life, is God-centered. Everything that we say, do, all that we are, everything is centered around Him and, and Him alone. Uh, the, the Christian 
who, the person who truly is a follower of Jesus does not live to obtain maximum satisfaction for himself, but they live in order to please their Lord. And, and that's, that's the, you know, we live in a world that it's all about, you know, if it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, do it. If this is what you want, you do it. But that's not the way the Christian lives. The Christian says, not, the question is not, is this going to please me? The question we ask, is this going to please God? Um, what, what we tend to do as human beings, and this happens a lot in the Western church. I don't think, I really don't think it happens the same in uh, many churches around the world. And I'll, maybe, uh, if I remember, I'll come back to that and talk about why. But, but what we tend to do is we, we tend to compartmentalize our lives. This is what, and I think it's a Western mindset. And so what we do is we, we sort of like, well, this is my church life and this is my home life. This is my business life. Um, and, and, and we think that they're not really interconnected. And so I, I act one way at church. I act another way at, at work. I act another way with my family at home or whatever. Uh, but, but, but that's not the way a Christian should live. Um, in, in fact, I, I really don't think we should, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify it. I think we should be careful about saying things about, well, we put God first. I think it goes deeper than that because the problem with saying that is that's true. That's absolutely true. But the problem with that is a lot of people, when they interpret that, interpret that, they'll say, well, I put God first. So that means I'm going to pray and read the Bible first in the morning. And then the rest of the day, I can do whatever I want. And that's, that's the problem in our, with our mindset. What I picture the Christian life, it's, it's more like a bicycle wheel. You know, you know what a bicycle wheel, what, what, what it's, it has all those spokes in it. And, and if you can picture in your life that that's all the different parts of your life, the different areas, work, family, business, uh, church, whatever. Um, it's not that we line things up and we put God first and other things take, you know, lower priority behind it. But what it really is, is that God is in the middle of all of it and every part of our lives, everything we say, everything we do. Everything that we are is connected directly to him. It all starts from him and emanates outward like a bicycle wheel. But, but we, we should recognize that if we're a follower of Christ, then everything we do should be done with the goal of pleasing our God. Now, that, that's not to say that that's going to happen. Anybody here ever fail? Okay, let me see. I mean, all the humans here, raise your hand because if you're human, you failed. And so it doesn't mean that you're always going to do what pleases God, but that's going to be your goal. That's what you're, that's, you're, you're going to try to do that. And there are going to be many times in life that you'll make a decision. And later on, you realize, you know what? I really made that selfishly and I didn't think about God. I didn't put him first in this situation. And then you make it right. You, you repent before God and you, and you try to, you know, learn from that and grow and be empowered to change that. But, but the reality is, the truth is, people cannot claim to know and love God if they don't seek to please Him. You know, if, you, if I claim to love anyone, then one of the things that's going to be important to me is that I'm going to, I want to please that person. Now, it can get out of whack uh, because, uh, you know, if I, I, I love my, my daughters, but if I can't make it my primary goal to please them because there are things that they need to learn. And sometimes it's not pleasing to them when I, in their lifetime, when I have said no to them or when they've been punished, it was not pleasing to them. You know, I've never had, thankfully, because I wouldn't know what to do. I'd be all completely lost. I've never had either one of my daughters when they got punished for anything, which was really not a very common thing because they're just, you know, they've just been such good kids. But when they did, get punished. I never had them jump up and say, that was awesome. Can you do that again? You know, I mean, thank goodness they never did that because I'd have been so confused. I'd been turned to Julie and saying, well, what do we do now? I'm, I don't have, I've got nothing. I don't know what to do next. But, um, but we do seek to please those that we love. And we, we, what we do is we make it our goal to, um, to, to try to obtain what's best for them. And it's the same with God. What we're trying to do is we're trying to live our lives in a way that is best for him, for his kingdom, for his purpose, for his glory, knowing that as we do that, that will, that will please him. But a genuine faith always makes a difference in, the, in how we live. 
It always changes how we live. And this is something, there are a lot of people preaching an easy grace message and they say, well, you can live, you can do whatever you want, live it however you want. If you pray a prayer, then you're saved. No, that's not what the Bible teaches because if you are saved, your life will change. It will change. And if it does not change, then you have not been regenerated. You have not been saved. You, you may have prayed a prayer. You may have gone through some motions, but you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. So that, that's a different thing altogether. But apparently, the Thessalonians had taken Paul's instructions to heart when he told, when he instructed them how to live in order to please God, because he said, as in fact you are doing. So they were actually living out the instructions. But what he said in this, in these first two verses that is so striking is that he wanted them to do so more and more. In essence, what Paul was saying to the Thessalonians, and this is a great message for us today. He said, you started the race well, now keep running. You haven't crossed the finish line. You're not done yet. You started the race well, now keep running. Quite plainly, he says, hey, you need to take your spiritual devotion and your walk with God to another level. You need to keep pressing in. You need to do it more. You need to grow. You you can't just lay back and, and take it easy. As he or as he put it, do this more and more. I I think that this really speaks a lot to our tendency to grow into complacency in the in the Christian world in our Christian walk and our walk with Jesus. Um, It's a it's a very common thing to get to a place where you're like, you know, you just sort of plateau. You're not really growing. You're not pressing in. You you know, uh, and 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 this is something Paul is saying: guard against this in your life. Don't let this happen. Uh, but, but following Christ is not a sprint to the finish line. It's, it's a marathon that requires commitment and tenacity and discipline. You know, if, if you start a marathon the same way that you start a, uh, you know, a hundred meter sprint, you're not going to last very long because a hundred meter sprint, it's all out as fast as you, as you can go for hundred meters, but a marathon You've got to keep going. It's about continuing the race. It's not about how fast you can go. It's not about, you know, uh, any of that sort of thing. It it is this marathon that requires commitment and tenacity and desire. You you don't enter this race just to try it out. You, You enter this race to finish because that's the goal is to cross the finish line, to finish our race. And the great thing about it is, is that I'm not racing against you. Because the the truth is, if I cross my finish line, I win. And if you cross your finish line, you win. Because we're not in competition with each other. We're just just living our lives and running our race in a way to try to please God and to keep going. And, and And by the way, the only way we can really lose is to quit and to give up. If we keep going, we will see our salvation fulfilled. We will cross the finish line. We will win. But you you, you don't get in to try it out. You get in to finish it. You say, I'm all in on this. You burn your bridges. You you turn uh, away from your past. You you don't look back and and you can't go back. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Paul was saying, you you have the foundation in place. Now keep building on it. Keep building on it. Building on this foundation would not come from trying harder. It would only be possible by, be, be possible by digging deeper. So what do I mean by that? Paul wrote, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And he reminds them of the specific biblical commands that he had taught them while he was with them. And there's an important principle in this that we must, that we can't miss. That's very important. It's about learning what the word of God says and putting it into action in our lives. And, and let me just say this. We must, we must know what the Bible says, not just what a preacher says. You know, a lot of, there's a lot of really good preachers in the today's world. And there's a lot of them that are very skilled communicators. But that doesn't mean that they're always right when you when you begin to read the word of God. 
when the world is falling apart, or more specifically, when your world is falling apart, your first response should be to should not be to recall what the preacher said, but your first response should be to remember what God said. You know, when Jesus was facing temptation in the wilderness, he didn't say, you know, I heard Rabbi Joe Schmo say this. Let me quote you what he said. No, that's not what he did at all. What did he do? He quoted scripture. He said, this is what God said. This is what the word of God says to me. And so uh, many of us, frankly, in today's world, in the Western church, uh, would rather read books about the Bible that offer quick and helpful fixes uh, to life's problems rather than actually mind the depths of Scripture itself. So I'm, I'm just here to tell you this. I, I'm not ever offended when you when, if you do this. Don't just take my word for anything that I say. Don't just take my word for anything that I teach or anything that I preach. You need to get into the Word. You need to see if that's what it says in the Bible. And, and, and when you get into the word and you see that, then you need to hide it in your heart. You need to memorize it. You need to get it. It's not about you getting into the word. It's about the word getting into you. And so, and, and then once you know what God says in the word, here's what I say to you. The same thing as Paul said, put it into action in your life more and more and more and more. Every day, look for a way that you can say, I want to do this more. So, for example, if, the, if I read the Word of God says to love my neighbor, that means today I want to try to figure out how to love my neighbor better and more than I did yesterday. Why? So that I can honor God. And, and, and so a, a, a decision to follow Jesus does not mark the end of a journey at all. In fact, it's only the beginning. And it's the starting point of that marathon race. But God did not... Save us to sit in a church pew and to listen to sermons or to put money in the offering plate. And while those things are all good things, they do not account for the sum total of your salvation. When we follow Christ, we commit to pursue him with our entire being. And Satan wants nothing more than to keep us right where we are. He wants us to be comfortable with our church membership and complacent in our walk with God and callous in our view of sin around us. And we have to recognize those dangers in our lives and around us. We, we dare not ask what the minimum requirement is for being a Christian. How little can I do and still get by? How little can I do and still be a follower of Jesus? No, what Paul is saying is we have to, it's about pursuing God with an ever-increasing zeal. And, and that's a challenge, especially, listen, I'm, I'm getting older. I don't know if anybody even noticed that, but my body sure has noticed that. You know, and, and, and so it's, it's, it becomes a challenge because, you know, I don't have the same kind of energy I used to. Somebody, Linda's back there with their shock face, you know. Uh, yeah, it just, you know, it happens. But I want to also have to understand that my energy level is not the same as my level of zeal. I may not be able to physically do everything that I have done in the past or that I would like to do today, but the fire can burn brighter in my heart than ever before in spite of that. So through, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is transforming us from who we are into who he wants us to be. And our holiness is his priority. We're going to talk about that next. We're going to pick it up in verse three. It is God's will that you should be sanctified my clock here didn't start running. So I have no idea what time it is, but I'll just go till I'm done. So uh, let, let me read again. Verse three, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So the phrase he starts off with there, it says, it is where he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now that's a really kind of an old fashioned way of saying something. You could translate that sentence this way. God wants you to be holy. 
it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified is just a big fancy word for holy. Uh, and so he's saying, God wants you to be holy. And the word that sums up God's desire for his children is holiness. Holiness. And holiness has become something, a, a bit of a lost word in the contemporary church in America today. People, you know, we don't, we don't like to talk about holiness. And part of it is because that word has been abused some in the past. You know, I mean, there are people that, that say, uh, you know, that holiness was about having long hair and women wearing uh, skirts and men having long sleeve shirts and, and these sign of outward things and, you know, not going into the movie theater and, and, you know, maybe not going into the bowling alley back in the day. And I mean, all kinds of things that we would have. We had all these external things and we said, this is what holiness is. And so it got a bad reputation. But in response to that, sometimes we swing completely the other side and we say, no, I'm free because of the grace of God. And we just sort of leave out the idea of holiness but we need to understand what holiness really is and understand that this is important because in Hebrews, this isn't in the, any of the verses, but in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, it says, without holiness, no man will see God. So holiness is a very important thing because without it, I'm not going to see God. Now, the, the great thing about holiness is, first of all, and I'm, I'm getting all of stuff out of order here, but I'll figured out as we go forward. But the, the reason I can see God is because the holiness of Christ is given to me. It's mine. And so he makes me holy so I can enter his presence. But the problem with this is when, when I got saved, he made me holy. But guess what? I didn't live holy. Anybody here like me? And, and even after that day, there have been many times in my life, there were things that I did that were not holy. So, so he makes me holy. I'm ready to see God perfectly holy in Christ when I get saved. And yet there's still also growth in holiness. That's the process of sanctification. You may have heard that's that process. Really it's, and we talked a little bit about it last week. That's the process of me recognizing that God has made me holy. Therefore, I, I change the way I live to match who I now am. And it's a process of learning to do that where we grow in our holiness. But, but people have often, you know, they regard holiness only in the sense of the negative quality. That is the absence of moral fault. We think holiness is there's no sin here, that sort of thing. But actually, I think it's even more. I think this, if we think of it this way, it helps us in our growth in holiness, but it, but it's actually a positive thing because, uh, I, I read it, this, uh, uh, defined this way today. It is the shining reflection that appears in human character when we learn in practice what it means to be in God's image. So holiness is about me reflecting the beauty of the holiness of God in my everyday life and in my character in my actions, in my attitudes. A.W. A. Tozer says this. He said, and this is such a great uh, quote, a very short uh, quote. He says, holy is the way God is. That's just who he is. And he understands that to mean that God is separate from everything. Because you remember, we've talked about that. Holiness is about being separate, about being set apart. And when we are made holy, we're set apart for God, for his purposes. But he says that he understands holy holiness to mean that God is separate from everything, everything, especially sin. And, and when we talk about holiness in our lives, while pleasing God may consist of, uh, of and, and require any number of acts or avoiding certain things, that sort of thing. But the concept actually refers to an all encompassing lifestyle. It's about how I live my life in order to reflect the holiness of God. It's, it's a way of living that per permeates the individual to such a degree that pleasing God is no longer simply, uh, simply about what I should or should not do. It's not about my list of do's and don'ts and my list of sins and not sins and that sort of thing, but it is who you are and the way you conduct all of your life in relation to God. God longs for us 
to become the sort of humans who will truly reflect his image. And the, and the way he is described most often in scripture is holy. He is, he is love. He is just. All of these things. But all of those things. Holiness is the thing, is what, is the description of the perfection of all of his other attributes. So he is love, but his love is a holy love. He is power, but his power is a holy power. So his, the holiness is the perfection of all of his other attributes. And so uh, we can understand holiness better if we, if we understand it as becoming more and more like God or, or more and more like Christ, uh, who has chosen us, who has called us, who has saved us. So, so really what we're talking about here is that the call to holiness in a very, in a very uh, real way is also a call to discipleship. Because, and it's not, I'm not talking about a class. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about becoming a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Because discipleship means that I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be his disciple. I'm going to be following him. I'm going to be learning from him. I'm going to be learning from the word. And as I learn who he is, as I begin to catch a vision of him and his holiness and his beauty, then I can respond to that and say, Lord, help me become like that. Uh, sanctification, as I said earlier, is the process of becoming holy in our everyday lives. And th- this process continues throughout every believer's lifetime on earth, uh, preparing him or her for heaven. And God takes the old patterns and behaviors and transforms them to his standards and to his will. And it's that process of me looking at my life and me understanding his holiness and saying, this part, you've made me holy, God, but this part of my life is not matching up with who you are. So Lord, with your help, I'm gonna change this. I'm gonna forsake this. I'm gonna walk away from this and I'm gonna let you change me. And Paul gets very specific when he talks about living a holy life, living to please God, because he says to avoid sexual immorality. Now we read that and to us, you know, to our modern uh, mind, it becomes, it may come as a bit of a surprise to, to find an exhortation to sexual purity in the, in the very forefront of practical directions to a Christian church. But here's what we need to understand. And I think, I think we're going to really relate to this because of the culture in which we live. But, but Thessal, Thessal, let me get it out. Thessalonica was a sex saturated city. It was very well known for its promiscuity, uh, and much like the world today, the, the Greco-Roman world viewed sex as simply a, another biological function like eating or drinking. And so when you were hungry, you ate. When you were thirsty, you drank. When you, in the same way, when you craved sex, you had sex. No restrictions. It was simply accepted, and it was readily available if you desired it. It was part of idol worship. It was in the temples, the uh, prostitution, temple prostitution was, was involved. In fact, you'll, you'll see very often in the New Testament, the Bible, there's a very, very close association with sexual impurity and worship of idols, almost interchangeable, because that was how much it was tied into the worship of idols back in those days. And, and for men, at least, uh, sex outside the confines of marriage was tolerated and expected and monogamy was regarded as an unreasonable demand on a man. I've heard some of these same arguments today in our culture. I've heard people say things like, well, you can't expect a man to just be monogamous, you know, to have to, to just have one woman his whole life. You know, that's just not normal. And, and that's just it, it, but, but this is their culture. And we're, we have a lot of similarities now. And so in a man, in addition to a wife, a man might also have a mistress or and or a, a concubine. And, and then the nature of slavery back in those days meant that all slaves of both sexes were forced to make themselves subject to their master's d- desires. Now, it's interesting. What I found often is that uh, that often when men make the rules, they make rules that are that are beneficial to them, but they but not beneficial to the women. Have you ever noticed that? Like like some of those old churches where they had all the rules for holiness for dress, almost all the rules were how women should dress. You know, well, 
just so you know, that has nothing to do with the way God treats us because he treats us all equally. So back in those days, wives were, were expected to be the mother of the man's legitimate children, to provide an heir and to manage the household. There's a famous quote by the Greek philosopher Demosthenes, and he says, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. So this is the culture in which they lived. Men were, they were expected and uh, to be promiscuous and do whatever they wanted to sexually. This is the culture in which the Thessalonians had been immersed their whole life. And there's no question that some, if not all, of those that were believers in that church, uh, probably not the one, wouldn't be the ones that, if there were any Jewish believers in there, they wouldn't be included, but, but there was doubtless some of those who followed Christ in Thessalonica who were former participants in that culture. And the pressure to conform to the, to the easy standards accepted throughout society must have been strong on that early church. And, and you know, because there's always culture, there was always pressure to conform. That's what Paul said in Romans 12. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Well, when he used that word, do not be conformed, it literally means uh, uh, being forced into a mold. So it's this pressure from the world to say, no, we want you to be like us. Why is that? Because when you live a holy life, it points out the sin in theirs. And they don't like that. And, and, and that's when they'll start saying, oh, you're just holier than thou. It's like, no, no. Well, I am. But, but it's just because Christ has made me holy. I'm not better than you. Don't say that part because they won't understand that part. But, uh, um, uh, but it points out the sin in their life. And so there's always this constant pressure. And Paul knew these were baby Christians. And he knew that this was going to be a constant pressure on them as a church to conform to the, to the culture. And, and so it's to understand here that Paul was not writing to, to correct wrongdoing. He did that in Corinthians because there, there was some sexual sin going on. You can read that another time. And he used much stronger language to deal with that. But here, he, he's not correcting something that is wrong. What he's doing is he's reminding the Thessalonians to be on their guard and to continue in their journey toward holiness, to not let up, keep going forward, keep pressing into this thing, don't move backwards, because you know you know how to live a life that pleases God. Now, I think it's important for us, there's something here, a principle for us today. Paul understood that they, the Thessalonians, could not let their guard down. The same is true for us. Never, ever underestimate the threat to your soul from what's going on around you in the world. This is what the Bible said. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And he's talking about specifically about somebody going to confront somebody else in their sin. And he says, listen, you got to be careful. Because if you think that you're firm and you, if you think you're standing firm and man, I'm above this, I don't have to worry about this sin. He said, be careful. Be careful if you get overconfident, if you think I got this, I'm past this. I, you know, I don't have this issue in my life. This is way past me in, in the rear view mirror and, and I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to worry about it anymore. He said, you better be careful because you're setting yourself up for a fall. And in, in Thessalonica, the same way as it is uh, here in our culture, sexual, sexual immorality is a temptation that is always before us. Uh, we, we live in a society that just exudes sexuality, and it's not something that you have to go looking for. It's, in, it's on the TV in overt ways that has never been before. It's in the movies. It's on the pages of magazines. It's, it's on the billboards. It's on every ad that you see. You know, we, we, you just, you can stumble across it on the internet. Uh, and then, and then you add to that that marriage and God's way of doing things is often pictured in the entertainment industry as confining and joyless and just this horrible mundane existence and that they just are always at each other's throat, that it's a terrible way to live. And, 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 and then you add to that the fact that those who are pure, those who want to do it God's way are often mocked. 
Well, here's what we have to understand. God does not forbid sexual sin just to be difficult. Some people think God's just a cosmic kill, killjoy. Well, he's just trying to make sure I don't have any joy. No, actually, he's trying to guard your joy. He's trying to guard your joy because he knows the power of, of sexual sin to destroy us physically and spiritually and emotionally. No one should underestimate the power of sexual immorality. And by that, I mean, I'm including not only physical acts, but also, as Jesus included, our mind. Because he said, you've heard it said, if a man commits adultery with a woman, he said, I'd say if you even lusted after her, you've already committed it in your head. So we include that in that. But sexual immorality has devastated countless lives. It has destroyed families. It has split and destroyed churches and communities and, and even nations. It has undermined nations. And, and here's what we have to understand. Overconfidence in ourselves will make us vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And, and, and even here's the thing. Even if you're a place where the, the sexual sin is not tempting to you, there's another sin that you can fall into. And one in particular is it can be pride. Well, I would never. I'm, I'm, I'm way beyond that. I'm too good for that, that sort of thing. And so when, when dealing with any potential area of sin, whether it's sexual sin or some other area, don't think that you don't need to be on guard against it. Be aware, be alert. Don't, don't be overconfident in your own ability to resist sin. Don't think that you're strong enough that you can deal with it, but be confident that God will help you deal with the temptation by not allowing you to be overwhelmed and by making a way for you to escape. Whereas, well, I know you're thinking of a verse. We're going we're gonna to come back to that verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, in just a little bit. But, but each of us, Paul said, needs to learn to control his or her body in a way that is holy and honorable. Holiness means, we've already talked about that, to be like Christ, to be set apart for God. So I need to handle my body in a way do I recognize this body has been set apart for God's purposes. That's what, even go back to Romans 12.1, Paul writing there, 12.1 and 2, where he said, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what he's saying. Your body does not belong to you. It's been set apart for God's purposes. And, and, uh, and it's the uh, temple of the Holy Spirit, he says in Corinthians. And, and even there, he ties it to the, to the sexual immorality. He said, Can't, you know, are we going to join the, you know, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit to harlots or to prostitutes? He says, God forbid. He said, no, you got to understand. This body isn't yours and you're not free to do whatever you want with it. This body belongs to him. It's been set apart for his purpose. And therefore, I need to, if I'm holy with my body, that's, that's what it means to, to control my body in holiness. And then it says, and what is honorable. And that means uh, honoring others means putting them first, especially God. So we have to remember when it comes to sin, we are in control of how we live. And we can't blame our sin on other people. We, we do like to do that. You know, it may be not so much in one area, this area, but, you know, like if we have an explosion of anger, you ever heard somebody, maybe you've said it, well, he just made me so angry. What, well, you just, you just put the whole onus on them. You say, well, if they weren't who they were, then anger would not have come out of me. Well, no. I, now, anger is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. What I do with it is whether, whether that's a sin or not. If I choose to let that anger flow out of my cup and, and I pour it around all over that person and I attack them and I belittle them, now it's become a sin. And so, uh, you know, I can't control, I can't stop emotions from happening. You know, I can't, I can't stop myself from feeling anger in a moment, in a situation. 
I can stop myself from acting on the anger. And that's, that's the difference there, an understanding that that's what about controlling my body in a way that is holy and honorable. With Christ in our lives, we have the power to do what is right and to make right choices. Now, before Christ, we're slaves to sin, which means we really don't have a lot of choice in the matter, do we? We do, because otherwise we couldn't be held accountable if we had no choice whatsoever. But we don't have any power to resist, put it that way. We still make our choices, but we don't have the power to resist because we've given that power. We, you know, we've, we've given ourselves into slavery of sin. But when we come to Christ, He sets us free from that and He empowers us to, and gives us the grace to do what is right in our lives. So, and it means we don't have to be governed by our passions and our desires. And He says in this, in this context here, He says, He says, in this matter, now He's talking about sexual sin. He says, don't wrong your brother. So what he does, what he's telling us is saying that not only, not only does sexual sin ruin the holy and honorable living to which Christian men should aspire, but it's also a sin against one's fellow man, whether, whether they're Christians or not. It's, it's sinning against other people to have, you know, for example, to have a sexual affair with another man's wife or a member of his household. It, it's, it's wrong and I'm sinning with and against that woman, but I'm also sinning against that, that man. To have even to have premarital sex or, or to have a sexual affair with a woman who's unmarried. It's not only a sin there for those people, but think about this. It's also, it's also a sin against another man. Because he's focusing in because of the, the fo focus on men in his culture. He's focusing in on the men here. Why is it a sin against another man with a single woman? Well, because one day when that woman gets married, this is what, you know, and all of this is old news to you, but I used to teach this to teenagers when I was a youth pastor, but the, the, the greatest gift the couple can give to each other when they get married is themselves. That's why the, the, the wedding night is such a holy moment because it's those two giving themselves, giving themselves to each other a gift that has never been given to anyone else. And when a person sins with a single woman or a single man, they are taking something from them that doesn't belong to them, that belongs to their future spouse. Because what did, what did Paul say in the New Testament? He's speaking to a man and a woman who are married. He said, your body is not your own. He says to the husband, your body belongs to your wife. He says to the wife, your body belongs to your husband. And so even then, in that sense, he's, he's sinning against his brother in that, in that situation. It's a transgression, not only against the holiness of God, but it's also a sin against the dignity of other people. And to be sexually impure is basically to tell God, number one, that we don't care what you say, God. It's a rebellious heart, but it's also to tell other people, we don't care who you are. I want what I want. And it becomes a very self-centered, self-gratifying act, not about, about, uh, about uh, serving or honoring or, or loving another person, but more about, I want what I want. As Paul might describe it, when we commit sexual sin, we disobey God's will, and we disregard our brother's or sister's personhood. And we cross a boundary that God never intended to be crossed. And we're, as I said, we're taking something from someone else that does not belong to us. And, and I don't have time to get into this, but the Bible just seems to teach, you know, that, that, that the act of, of, of uh, sexual intimacy, that, 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 that there's a part of me that I give to that person in that, in that process, and I can never get that back. And so, in essence, we're saying to that person, I don't care about you. I don't care, you know, that we're not, you know, we may not be together the rest of our lives, whatever, but, 
But Paul reminds us that God does not overlook these sins, but he says he will punish men for all such sins. This is where he gets a little stronger, a little more like Corinthians here, because he says, just remember, I told you, God will deal with this. God is a just God. He will punish those that, that, uh, that, that, that live in this way. And he says, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Um, Let's go down to verse 8, because here Paul makes it clear that, uh, that these are not human guidelines he's giving. It's interesting because you read a lot in Corinthians, he'll say, he'll say things like, well, this is not from the Lord, but I want to give you this guidance. This is, but here he says, this is, not, this is not from me. This is not human words. These are rules set out by God. In verse 8, he said, therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. He has that little thing on the end there, who gives you his Holy Spirit, because he's telling you, what, what, think about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The work of the Holy Spirit is to make you holy. It's to sanctify you. It's to, it's to strengthen you. It's to make you like Christ. And he's saying, if you reject this, you are actually working against the Holy Spirit that he's given you. And he, he begins this discussion here in, in verses 1 through 8 uh, with an exhortation to please God, but then he ends it with a warning about rejecting God. And pleasing God means living a pure life. Rejecting God means living an impure life. It's just not complicated in this setting. Jesus said this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which you could say the inverse of that is, if you don't keep my commandments, then you don't love me. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to, you know, we got to be careful. We, you know, we're not going to be perfect. So we're not, it doesn't mean that we're never going to fail in keeping a commandment. But it means that we're making it our goal in our life to please God and to honor him by keeping his commandments. And here, here Paul says, this is not something for men. This is the command of God to live in, in sexual sin or really we don't even have to say it that to live in any sin for that matter is to reject God and, and to allowing impurity to invade our lives would be, as I said a moment ago, in direct opposition to the work of the Holy spirit. And in verse eight, Paul draw, he, he basically draws a line in the sand and on one side of the land, uh, on one side of the, the line, we reject both God and his spirit within us. However, the opposite response brings about very different results. And, and to, to acknowledge the boundaries that God has established means this, these boundaries of, of sexual purity, the boundaries of life to, that please Him, it means to acknowledge those boundaries means that we desire to acknowledge the God who established the boundaries. So if I say, if God says, here's the boundaries, here's how I want you to live, which He gives those boundaries, again, not to restrict our joy, but to protect our joy, because, you know, going back to that whole thing earlier, you know, with the, with the, you know, sex before marriage thing, uh, if, if, you know, we, we think, well, it's God's just trying to restrict my joy. No, no, no. He's trying to protect your, your, the fullness of your joy for the rest of your life. That doesn't want you, uh, messing up what, what He has for you and what He's planned for you. And, and so, recognizing the boundaries and saying, I want to honor those boundaries. That is another way of saying, God, I want to acknowledge that those came from you. If I ignore the boundaries, then I'm saying, God, I don't believe those came from you. I don't, I reject you. And so in, in doing that, we acknowledge, we honor God and his indwelling spirit. And that brings us back full circle to the relationship with God. Everything in your Christian life rests on this relationship, including your response to temptation. Our motivation to obey God comes not only from the benefits of obedience, because there are great benefits to obedience, right? If he says, don't do this, there are great benefits to following that because it, it leads to joy in our lives, leads to peace, leads to all kinds of things. But that's not the only motivation. But it also, motivation also comes from our, our commitment to acknowledge God for who he is. Uh, unlike those who have no regard for God, we use our passions not to satisfy our cravings, but to please our God. 
I want to close with just a little short practical teaching on how to deal with temptation. Because we've talked about holiness, we've talked about temptation, we've talked about these things. And and the scripture gives us some insight as to how to deal with temptation. And this is important for us to remember. It's not just sexual temptation, but any kind of temptation in our lives that we face. This is important. So I'm going to give you uh, two or three things here. Number one, exercise alertness and awareness to stay away from places where temptation is strong. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Here's a, a great way to understand, understand that is this idea of being alert and aware to staying away from the places where temptation is strong. If you're an alcoholic and God has set you free from that, you don't go hang out at the bar. Right? If you uh, were a sexual addict, you don't go hang out, you know, out, you know, outside the X-rated place, whatever. I don't even know what the adult entertainment store, whatever you call it. I don't know. You know, whatever you, whatever you struggle with, you stay with, you stay away from it. If you know, if I go into this situation, the temptation is going to be strong, then don't put yourself in that situation. And in doing that, what you're doing is you're making the choice before you have to make the choice. Right? Here's the number two. Use strong, evasive action if you find yourself entrapped or in a situation where the temptation is strong. Here's how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 6.18. He says, run away from sexual sin. Notice he did not say, Resist with everything you've got. He doesn't say, be strong in the Lord. No. He says, listen, you need to just be a coward and run as fast as you can. Don't try to mess with it. Don't try to be strong in the face of it. Run away from it. Get away from the temptation. This is what Joseph did. We just finished a study in the life of Joseph. When he was in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife came and wanted to to sleep with him, wanted him to sleep with her, what did he, she, you know, finally she got to the point where she got him alone in the house and, and she grabbed hold of him and said, he, she said, lie with me, sleep with me, have sex with me. And he's and the Bible says that he ran out of the house and, and she had a hold of his coat and left the coat there. He ran away from it. It's a perfect example of what he's talking about. He said also, Paul said in first Corinthians 10, so my dear friends flee from the worship of idols. He said, run. Don't, don't toy with it. Don't mess with it. First, excuse me, second Timothy 2.22. He said, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. So if I know, if, if, if there's a situation there and I see it coming, if I'm, if I'm in a situation and somebody shows up and say I've had a problem with alcohol and somebody shows up and they've got some booze, you know what? I'm not going to stick around and just say, well, I, I'm just, I think I can be strong tonight. No, that's the time when I excuse myself and say, I got to go. I'm leaving. I got to run from it because the longer I stay, the longer I linger, the stronger the temptation gets and the harder it is to walk away. But the, the very best way to deal with temptation is simply to run away. Don't, don't play with the trap or you'll get caught. Or don't play with fire, because if you play with fire, what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. You know, we ought not see how close to God's moral line we can walk before we are too close, before we cross the line, but instead stay as far away from the line as possible. It's like the old story about the man who was going to hire a new chauffeur driver, a wealthy man. And he, he had three applicants and he took them up on this mountain road and he said, all right, I'm going to do, give you a simple driving test. I want to see, I want to test your driving skills. And he, and he, and there was this curve with the, the, with the, where the road was perilously, perilously close to the edge of a, of a cliff to a drop off. And he said, I want to see who drives, who, who can drive the closest to that without falling over. So the first guy goes there and he hugs that line and he's close, you know, six inches away from the, 
from the edge. And, the, and the, the, the wealthy man thought, man, that's impressive. Then the next guy said, that's nothing. And he got in the car and he drove that car up. And I mean, the edge of the tire was hanging off and he's slipping and he gunned it and barely got out of there just in time. And the wealthy man was like, wow, that's really crazy. But the third man got in there and he drove as far over to the left side as he could away from that cliff and he got the job. Because the guy was not interested in, in daredevils. He wanted somebody that was going to be as safe as possible. He, and, and so in our lives, we don't see how close we can get to sin without messing up. But we run from it. We stay as far away as possible. We hug that inner line. But here's the beauty of it. First, First Corinthians 10, 13. I mentioned this verse earlier. I'm going to read it now. From the New Living Translation, Paul said, But remember that the temptations that come into your life are no different from what others experience. Now, that's important to remember because a lot of us think we're unique. We're like, nobody else deals with this. And the devil will try to isolate us and say, there's something wrong with you. Nobody. No, I don't care what your temptation is. Everybody deals with it in one way or another. But it says, and God is faithful. Listen to this sentence. He will keep the temptation from being so strong that you can't stand up against it. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you will not give in to it. Now, some people have misapplied that. And they've said, and they've talked about trials in life. They say, God won't give you more than you can handle. That's not what it says. It's not talking about trials. It's talking about temptation. There are all kinds of trials in your life. They're going to be more than you can handle. That's why we need Jesus. So anytime you hear somebody say, well, God won't ever give you more than you can handle. Oh, yes, he will. Because he wants us to rely on him. What the truth is, he'll never give us anything that he can't handle. But this is talking about temptation. This is about a father who protects his children. He knows where we're weak. He knows where, where we're, we're vulnerable. And he's saying he's not going to let you, he's not going to give you, allow a temptation to come in your life that is absolutely impossible, that it's going to overwhelm you. And he says it, it, the way he's going to deal with it is when that temptation comes, if you look around, he's going to make sure there's a way out. There's an escape route. There's a way for you to deal with it. There's a way for you to run. So in that place of temptation, when you find yourself there, look for the way of escape. Look for the way out of the situation that God has provided because it's there. He has promised he will provide a way out. It may mean leaving the room. It may mean leaving a relationship. That's a whole different matter there. But there's a way out. There's a way of escape that God has provided and so you need to take the exit and you need to get away from the place of temptation as fast as you can. The longer you linger, the more deadly the situation becomes. Run away. Take the escape route. And, 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 and run to freedom. Run to Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that this call to holiness is not a, a negative thing, but Lord, it is about learning to reflect the beauty of your image and the beauty of your holiness. And Lord, that we see that you have made us holy through the work of Christ and what he did on the cross. And Lord, we want our lives to match up the reality of who you've made us. And so God, I pray that you would help us to press into your word, to get, to, to get it more and more in our hearts and in our minds and and God, that we would do it more and more and more and press in and we would keep running this marathon race. And as we do, that you would continue to shape us and mold us so that we would reflect the beauty of Christ more and more to the world around us. And God, in this area of temptation, you know, Lord God, we are human and being tempted is not a sin. Jesus himself, Lord, we know you are tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. But God, teach us to be wise Lord, teach us to avoid those areas where we know the temptation 
could be, could be strong in our lives. And Lord, teach us in the moment of temptation to look for the way of escape and to run for that exit as quickly as possible. Help us, Lord God, because all of this comes from your strength. We, we're not strong enough. We're not good enough. We're not powerful enough, but you are. And I thank you, Lord, for the help that you give, even in the moment of temptation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.